Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us. This is Ingrid Cochran, your host for today. I would also like to introduce my co-host, Matthew Portell. Hello, everyone. I am so glad to be back um, on this podcast and continuing my role with Paces Connection as the Director of Communities. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, Today, we're really um, going to kind of pivot our focus from the um, our focus in Women's History Month to really focusing on um, National Child Abuse Prevention Month. Um, as our first show in April, all month long, we're really going to focus on the big picture when it comes to child abuse in America and um, really have a big picture view of uh, how America's culture and history uh, essentially facilitates the child abuse crisis that we have currently uh, and also broaden our view and understanding of um, child abuse away from uh, just physical child abuse or or the narrative that is really focused on the individual or the um, family experience when it comes to child abuse. And so I really wanted to start this discussion and um, bring forward our last week um, week's episode that focused on um, really uh, Dr. Melissa Merrick as um, CEO of Pre- Prevent Child Abuse America and her discussion around really seeing child abuse as a, a issue of conditions that are uh, prevalent in our country, as opposed to being so focused on blaming and shaming parents. And that really resonated with me. Were there any takeaways from that episode for you, Matthew? Yeah, I, I think that is that is uh, that was a takeaway for me as well. And I think especially for those of you who don't know, I spent the last 15 years in public education and parent shaming is is real, um, especially in that field of, um, I, I can remember a survey that we gave staff that was eye-opening. It was, the gist was, do you feel the, pa- the parents care about their child's education? And the majority was no. Um, and that gave me pause, um, not shock, I should say, but pause. And so I think what Dr. Merrick was saying is that there are systems in place, right, that, that propel these, um, these narratives. And I think that's what I'm looking forward to over this next month is breaking down some of those narratives and digging into the systematic big picture all the way down to the individual family units and thinking about how does um, our culture uh, look at and respond to this idea of preventing child abuse. Because I think if you ask people that question, how do you feel or do you feel that we are preventing child abuse? Most people, if not all, are going to say yes. But once we start digging down, I think that people are going to recognize, wow, um, there's a lot of systems in place, um, not not just in the home. I think that's where most fingers are pointed. Uh, But looking at a systematic broad view as we work our way through the process uh, to see that we have a system um, that's that's could that can inflict abuse. Yeah, and this is really relevant to the paces movement, um, because as we 
uh, learn more about how childhood adversity impacts the brains and bodies of children and um, and adults, you know, as they matriculate through their lifespan. Uh, we um, we're really there on the science. We know the implications mm-hmm. of um, early adversity and obviously experiencing abuse is an adverse childhood experience and thus has uh, very real implications for our lifelong um, health and our in our cognitive abilities as it also impacts um, brain functioning. And so, you know, I've, this discussion is close to my heart because um, my background is child development. Uh, that is um, my, um, my focus of study in grad schools, child studies at Peabody College in, in Vanderbilt and uh, at Vanderbilt University. And then definitely as a college professor, most of my focus is developmental psychology and, and child development. And so um, I want to start this conversation with um, one of my favorite uh, child development theorists, um, Yuri Bronfenbrenner, who is kind of the father of the socio-ecological model. Uh, he is also, his work um, is still very relevant today because he was one of the key figures in um, the formation of Head Start in America. Mm. And he did a great job and he still, you know, there's so many quotes from him that are really relevant for this movement, for the Paces movement. The two that stand out the most are um, first, every child needs at least one adult who is irrationally crazy about him or her. Mm. And so this is something that we say often in, in Paces uh, that we need you know, safe, stable, nurturing environments and having at least one adult um, who can be kind of an anchor for a child. And then the other is um, no society can long sustain itself, its members, if its members have not learned the sensitivities, motivations, and skills involved in assisting and caring for other human beings. And so I think that that also is very relevant in this conversation as caregivers, right? As parents who are stewards of children, not just parents, but also teachers, um, um, child care workers, uh, the um, ins- when we think about institutions, uh, churches, um, boy and girl scouts, those all of those adults in homes and in communities, um, h- how we learn to care for um, or assist in caring for others is critical to our survival as a species. And um, if it's lacking, then it's impacting our entire society in a negative manner. Yeah, and I think um, I, we're going to be talking a lot about abuse, right? Because it is Child, Child Abuse Awareness Month. But I think what I also heard you say was there's a lot of research, a PACES research, and that we can't forget mm-hmm. that positive. And so I think that we have so much knowledge now than we may not have had in the past. Uh, and even this morning, I was looking uh, just at some numbers and, you know, I, I found out that there are still 19 states that that um, allow corporal punishment in the classroom. So, allowing uh, parents to come in and, and spank their children, allowing faculty members to come in and spank their children, 
we have a lot of work to do. Even with what we know, um, we still have a lot of work, but I do, and I, and I, I know we will highlight some of those positive pieces because you're right. And there's a lot of people that take credit for that quote, by the way, um, or a version of that quote that they do not give the right, uh, the affirmation of who said it. Um, But an adult can have that positive impact, but we also know an adult can also have an adverse impact. Um, So I guess I I hope that when people listen to this, um, they see uh, that they can have a positive impact on not just their own children, but children that they interact with um, every day. Yeah, I think um, that's very important. And we will think through um, what stress and trauma looks like at a systemic level, um, partnered with kind of what does liberation and healing look like in a, in a, in a systemic level. And one of um, the organizations that's done a great job of uh, really kind of adapting Bronfenbrenner's initial uh, theory uh, is the Rise Center out of um, California. They have uh, adapted uh, Bronfenbrenner's theory, um, really looking at um, interacting layers of trauma and healing. And this has allowed for us to have a better understanding of historical trauma and also how we can heal historical trauma. And so, I mean, let's, when we look at Bronfenbrenner's model, what he's essentially saying is that we have these different systems at play. Once we outline what those systems are, it is very hard to go back to that individual focus on a, on a child or family. Um, Bronfenbrenner um, says that one system is is the family, uh, basically where children spend the majority of their time as well. So um, that's going to include the, the home and school because children spend a great deal of time in school as well. Um, the next system is going to really be the community level, uh, how those smaller systems uh, interact together. Uh, and then as we move out, the next system is really going to look at um, institutional um, issues and, and policies uh, and other um, kind of government agencies, as well as media. Uh, and this obviously is a very powerful system. Um, and then the next level is going to be kind of our beliefs and values that we share as a, as a, as a society. And then lastly, we're going to be influenced by kind of the time that we live in. Uh, um, and so these different systems all work and feed into each other. They're always at play. Obviously, some systems are direct and some are indirect, but um, all of these different systems are going to have a real impact on a child's development uh, and then also impact them throughout their lifespan. And what the Rice Center has done is really looked at how um, we can also have that counterbalance of what does uh, healing look like in those systemic um, in that systemic framework, and so I really do appreciate them because they do bring the positive and think through you know what is that healing um, you know not just interventions uh, on the individual level but how can communities heal how can you have um, restorative policies and practices and then of course um, how do we get to kind of our collective understanding um, of uh, healing 
um, which is really kind of tied to what Bronfenbrenner says, again, about the beliefs and values that we have. And so let's dig in there a little bit. Um, At the individual level, you know, we're talking about the family systems and the experiences of abuse and neglect that children have, you know, essentially from parents and siblings and close family. And there's a lot there. Um, But, you know, you always want to ask why. Why are parents uh, engaging in abuse and neglect of their children? Why does that happen? Um, And then that, of course, leads us to the community level where we have uh, the beginnings of these structural issues taking place. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is your school uh, well-funded? And um, are your streets safe? Um, Do you have high levels of crime or does everyone in the neighborhood know each other? You know, these Mm -hmm. types of of things. Do you uh, have a neighborhood that is clean? Uh, Can you easily get to the bus? Um, You know, there's so much there um, in the community level that can definitely impact whether or not someone experiences adversity or abuse. And then we have policies the next step up that really can bring about um, increase or decrease the likelihood of, of abuse and adversity. One of those that you, you've already brought up, you know, um, can my school engage in corporal punishment? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are uh, policy level issues that can lead to abuse and neglect. Uh, another is uh, how we view issues of maternity and paternity leave. Those are policies mm-hmm that may make it harder for parents to be present uh, in their children's lives, especially at very vulnerable, sensitive periods like infancy. Um, And then we have our larger understanding, our beliefs and values around children. Um, We believe that children should be seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for issues of abuse and neglect? Um, We also um, exploit youth in our society. Uh, We see it as a commodity. Um, We definitely have the belief that children, uh, if they experience something when they're very young, that it has less impact when the science is very clear that the younger a child experiences abuse, neglect, or any adversity, it has actually um, more impact and is more difficult to address through the lifespan. Uh, and then, of course, the time that we're living in, uh, people are always talking about how pandemic babies are <laughs> are mm-hmm. uh, developing uh, at a different rate, be it slower or faster um, than typical. And, um, you know, we are in a collective trauma right now. And so parenting pre-pandemic looked very different from parenting post-pandemic. Uh, being a mother, you know, in the 60s, in the 50s or the 60s, it's very different from being a mother today. All of those different um, aspects when we think about generationally, um, when we have these collective and historical traumas, all of that lives there in that space, that system of time and place. Uh, and so I think Von von Brenner is brilliant in, in this theory and how he sees the big picture and how we are all um, impacted by these systems to include you know, whether or not we experience abuse or not. Well, and I think too, when, when I, when I think about my time in learning and child psych and going through educational classes, you know, 
and, and even society wise, societal wise, is thinking that it's always pointed at the individual as the root instead of really digging into his model, right? On a systematic level and saying, okay, let's start there and work our way back to see what type of dehumanization, which is what the Rice Center uses, um, has happened along this, this, this continuum. And I think that that's something that we have to be having open conversations in every sector about how do we as a society um, quit pointing the fingers at the individual person and saying, what's wrong with you, right? And start going, okay, where has the system failed to get to this point. And I think that that is, I, I, I do appreciate that about the RISE um, work is looking at it from a liberation and healing standpoint and saying, okay, this has happened. So now let's look at what we can do and start thinking about what change looks like. And I think one of the, the pieces that stuck out, stuck out to me because I grew up in a, um, in a very fundamentalist um, conservative home where children were most definitely to be seen and not heard. Um, And I remember being a child and feeling so frustrated and, to be honest, angry of not having a voice. And one of the pieces that the rise brings up is listening and validating, right? And I think so often, and I've even heard it in my work, where parents explain that the child tried to tell them something. And this is on a very basic level, right? And we'll get deeper than that, but literally trying to use their voice. Um, And one, they weren't believed or two, they were told to be quiet. Um, And isn't it interesting that we, at schools particularly, um, we we create thinkers, but we want them to be silent in the process of being thinkers. And I spoke to um, the the author of the uh, Culturally Responsive Teachings, Loretta Hammond, just last week. And she said a a phrase that has just stuck with me. And it's, um, we have a pedagogy of compliance. Uh, And wow, how that hit me of not just at schools, but in so many aspects of a child's life most children don't get to determine if, with, if or when they eat or how they have access to food or what they do. I mean, if we think about the development and then when they get older, we say, well, they don't know how to be independent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when comparing to other countries, I, I know that um, when my child was little, I was looking at the development and what other countries allowed their children to do. And I think it was like Germany or something. I could be completely wrong. Um, like allowed their children to start using knives at like the age of three. Again, I could be wrong. It could have been five. I don't know. Um, but I thought, oh my goodness. And I even told my wife, she's like, not in a million years. Right. So it's like, how does the context of how we were raised and what the norm is impact? And honestly, Greatly. It's why we have intergenerational transmission, right? Exactly. And this is, this is really um, what happens at that family level, that individual level, is that we are talking about intergenera- intergenerational transmission, especially um, communities that are impacted by historical trauma. And when we look at... Um, you know, even what you're saying about children not having voice, um, 
and this this really this push for control. Um, we can even go even further and say that some children are under a much tighter um, regimen of control than other children. And so we have these uh, intersections uh, along the issues of gender, for sure, what girls can do versus what boys can do. Um, and when we look at abuse overall, um, we can see that there's very clear differences in the way that girls experience abuse and the way that, that boys do, um, especially around um, sexual exploitation, emotional um, abuse, and physical abuse. So uh, boys are much more likely to be physically abused and emotionally abused um, in their childhood. And girls are much more likely to be sexually abused and exploited in their childhood. And this is also how we see uh, these differences in gender and how that manifests and how we believe we should raise our children. Um, we believe that girls should have much more control, um, that they should be more compliant, that they should be, um, that they should be submissive, that they should be friendly. Um, we believe that boys should not be able to display emotion with the exception of anger and dominance. Um, we're very clear on, you know, which children play with what. And I think a lot of this ties to um, what we what we talked about before, which is, that, you know, largely child abuse and neglect is driven by a lack of understanding on the parents end of what's developmentally appropriate. Um, and the what age children can do what things and um, what are the expectations based on age. And, and what does it mean um, when we have a society who is not interested in child development because they believe they've learned everything they need to know from grandma and grandpa? But let's talk about that because that falls into Bronfenbrenner's understanding that generational issues. What was life like for grandma and grandpa, great grandma, great grandpa? Uh, and when we have um, so many things going on in our society, um, the, the way historical and intergenerational trauma manifest um, across different demographics. Um, when we think about people whose childhood was in the 20s, um, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, the civil rights movement, Jim Crow, um, you know, we can go all the way back even to the formation of our, of our country, um, those who were settlers, and the trauma that they went through, indigenous people and the land theft and genocide that they experienced. Um, later immigrant populations coming, experiencing extreme discrimination. Um, so the Irish, Italian, um, people from various Asian countries, uh, the Japanese during um, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, uh, obviously, um, uh, descendants of slaves and and the black experience all throughout as it went from slavery to um, reconstruction to uh, Jim Crow to the war on drugs and and so all of these different um, historical and collective and intergenerational issues are embedded in parenting and is where our beliefs and how we should raise our children you know, that's where it lives. And then, of course, we raise our children the way that we've been raised. 
Well, and I think, and I've heard it a thousand times, and I know you probably have too, it worked for me, so why can't I do it for my child, right? And, and even honestly, I've had this conversation within my own family, with my siblings um, around, but did it work and has it worked? And, you know, I think what defines as it works, whatever it is, whether it's spanking, how, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Um, that, it, that happened to be the topic we were talking about. Um, again, I can tell the science, I can talk about neurodevelopment, I can talk about physical violence towards kids. I mean, I can talk about that, but there's always this, this concept that continues to come up. Well, it worked for me. Um, so, you know, it's going to work for, for my children or that's my choice. And, and coming from a evangelical background, the whole spare the rod, spoil the child. If I heard that one time in my life, I heard it a thousand times. And I heard, I remember hearing this hurts me more than it hurts you. Um, and I never, that, that I could never process those statements of this hurts me more than it hurts you. Right. Um, and so I, I think that we have to unfold this, this giant onion that is our, our society and, and looking at individuals because all we have is our own perspective, right? Until we get outside of our own perspective and start learning other people's perspective and learning other um, experiences and, and start seeing things. What was the quote that you said at the very beginning about a society cannot succeed? What, what was that? Because that's to me, that's what it boils down to. Yeah, if no society can long sustain itself if its members have not learned the sensitivities, motivations, and skills involved in assisting and caring for other human beings. That's it. And, yeah. and, and that says a lot. It, it really cuts to the issue that we have as a society when it comes to racism and ageism and sexism, all the isms <laughs> uh, lie right there where we draw lines around who we will care for, um, who do we consider to be a part of our communities and who is excluded, um, who is American and who's not. I mean, all of, the, mm. all of that is tied together. And as we uh, persist in this lack of care for each other, then we do it at our own detriment. Um, and that ultimately kind of trickles down into the way that we raise our children, because essentially that's what parenting is. Um, parents are preparing their children for adulthood. And so what does it mean for me to raise girls in this society? I have to prepare them to experience sexism. Um, mm -hmm. Because I feel as a parent, I might be, I, I would be basically not doing uh, my due diligence if I don't prepare my child for all that um, lies ahead for them in adulthood. The mm -hmm. same thing with racism, mm -hmm. uh, the same thing with homophobia, mm -hmm. uh, the same thing with poverty. Um, you know, what does it mean to prepare a child to live in poverty? Those communities that have been living with generational poverty, um, you know, they, they also are operating in that space of pre preparation. And all of this ties to an understanding that um, my, the adversity and trauma I've experienced, uh, you will also experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm preparing you for that in the home before you get out into the world, mm -hmm. um, which is, again, the opposite of science. Um, if your child is going to experience more adversity, 
because of the demographics that in, and kind of the rules and norms that we've set up in this society, um, what they need is even more care, mm-hmm. uh, even more attachment, even more um, uh, attention uh, and love uh, so that they can uh, build up uh, all of the things that they need um, for themselves, obviously, um, you know, great uh, brain development, attachment and care so that they can then um, navigate the world and all of the adversity that comes along with living in a racist society mm-hmm. um, or society that's really focused on um, issues of money and, and youth and societies that are driven by white supremacy and mm-hmm. economic exploitation. Um, they need more skills. They need more trust, more love to be able to navigate that space. And instead, um, parents are focusing on the preparation for that, um, not really understanding that also means that they are really pushing their child to experience even more adversity. Um, this, you know, as we move forward to the next half, where we're gonna really focus on um, what does this mean on the individual and family level, that uh, what Bronfenbrenner would call the um, microsystem. Uh, So please join us after the break. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. Thanks for joining us. This is Ingrid and um, Matthew Portell is also here with us as co-host Again, um, this is history, culture, trauma, and we are examining um, child abuse in America um, because this is National Child Abuse Prevention Month. Um, Before the break, we really talked about um, 
you know, the, the social ecological model and how we need to begin to look at um, all issues of development, but especially child abuse as an issue of systems as opposed to individuals. So the first system that we're going to kind of do a dive into is, is the individual level or what uh, Bronfenbrenner would call the micro system. Uh, it essentially um, involves the home um, and, and family systems and also school because those two um, entities are where children spend the majority of their time, half at school, half at home. Um, and we did get a question um, uh, in the first half that really asked about how important is parent education. Uh, and so I think this segment will really speak to that. And I know that when we were preparing for this session, uh, Matthew did a lot of uh, a lot of research to kind of you know dip his toe into um, this this area of focus. I'm very well um, aware of these statistics as someone who used to work for our local, um, well, not local, state level Department of Children's Services, uh, and so um, I'm going to let Matthew share some of the things that. He, stood out to him. Yeah, so I, I was digging in a little bit because, um, you know, I just, I like to know, I like to know what we're talking about on a deeper level. And uh, I, I looked at the, the report um, about referrals nationwide. Uh, and as most people probably um, could guess that the referral process for uh, the Department of Children's Services nationally was significantly down last year in 2020 because we were in the midst of a pandemic. Most kids were home. So I also want to put that in the context of thinking about the, the amount that potentially could have happened uh, in homes where uh, social isolation was occurring, where um, stress was occurring, where people were losing their jobs or it, all these, these weights. But last year alone, there were um, nearly 4 million referrals alleging maltreatment of students or of children. Sorry, students. See, I'm still in my educator's mind. Um, but that included over 7 million children. And, and, and when I hear that, I think, wow. But then I, I kind of followed the flow chart down to um, what that meant for processing students through our system, which I struggle with, um, to be quite honest. That meant that only uh, about 54 4% of those referrals actually were looked into. Um, so that means, you know, almost over 45% were not, they were screened out. Um, only about 2 million of them actually received a, a, a disposition. And, and, and another piece is that uh, there were 618,000 kids that were looked at as being victims and 1,750 children actually lost their lives and it wasn't being investigated. Um, but ultimately, uh, there were 124,360 kids that were in, ended up in, uh, in care, in child protective services. Mm -hmm. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, that, that seems like a really low number when you're thinking about how many children. Um, but Ingrid, these, are, these numbers are, are they, 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 they just get me kind of uh, anxious um, but these numbers don't show the kids who um, are being emotionally neglected or 
have experienced that intergenerational transmission of trauma where, uh, like we were talking before the break, what was done to me is what I'm doing to other kids. Um, And it goes down to what you were just talking about, and that's parent education. Uh, And I'm going to be honest, I have an 11-year-old, and I started this trauma-informed journey or these pace of science journey um, well after he was born. And I thought to myself, um, why didn't I know this before? Um, I remember being told uh, as a brand new parent, just put your baby down. If they're crying, leave them in the room. It's fine. And I thought back going, actually, I need to be doing that serve and return. I need to be meeting that need sometimes, right? It, it comes down to that. And I have a lot of resources. I, I, I understand the privilege that I have. And yet I still was still not prepared because nobody um, expressed. My mom told me what she did when I was a baby. And my mother-in-law told us what she did when my wife was a baby. Um, yeah. That was the education, right? I mean, it was, this is what we did with you, or this is what my grandma did, or I rocked you. Literally, we had the rocker in my house, Ingrid, that I was rocked in. I mean, that's how deep these traditions um, and, and passing of parenting works uh, in, in our society. Yeah, and you bring up so much there. And, and you know, I'm a new mother. I just had twins in, in, in November. And I have um, a now four-year-old. She turned four last week. And I'm also a person of privilege. I'm college educated. I have a decent income. And I still struggle. And and what I struggle with is that historical trauma um, piece, which is what does it mean to raise Black children in a racist society? Uh, And how is that impacting my parenting? Am I being overly cautious or am I being too uh, focused on control? Because again, that ties back to, you know, um, what does it mean to be a a mother of black children during Jim Crow? I'm going to have to be strict. I'm going to have to be um, very uh, survival based in my parenting. And that means um, survival based parenting means you're going to be more hands on, that you're going to talk um, it with not the same level of sensitivity as other parents and, and things of this nature and, and kind of tying it back to crying it out. Um, you know, we're essentially saying to our children that it's a tough world out there and, and, you know, no one wants to hear you're crying. And, and then they justify that type of uh, treatment of children by saying that that's how I was raised. Uh, and we have to take trauma into account there not just trauma, but a lack of positive experiences. So, you know, not all black children have been traumatized, but they were, but because of racism, there's probably less positive experiences in their childhood than, um, than other groups um, because of, of issues of race. Um, I remember being a young girl and seeing boys having more freedom than I did uh, again, a different experience, probably less positive when it comes to um, freedom and uh, initiative and independence for certain groups. And, and this is emotional abuse and neglect. 
um, that we don't often talk about um, that is definitely tied to poor outcomes, um, if not addressed. So I think that, you know, those statistics that you shared uh, are not alarming to me because, like I said, I, I've worked with the Department of Children's Services locally. I've even trained those individuals that answer the phones when a referral comes in. Uh, I've trained them on the issues of risk assessment and how to determine if if those um, interactions are um, worthy of moving up to the next level of risk. Um, does someone need to go out to their house versus does someone need to make a call? Uh, and it is tricky, uh, but definitely I find that when those referrals come in, they're more likely to be Black families. They're more likely to be poor families. They're more likely to be um, uh, Hispanic and immigrant families. And that there's, you know, that that's no coincidence. Well, and uh, it's it's interesting in that you say that because just uh, this week on Pace's Connection, uh, somebody posted a uh, article from the imprint uh, by Megan Kahn and Michael Fitzgerald that was talking about a New York lawyer that acknowledged um, the child welfare system harsh impact on Black families and then based it in numbers. Um, and so I think, again, we have, we, we are talking about that family unit. Um, and I can't wait till we can, over the next couple of episodes, start stepping back and saying, but why are all of these fingers pointing towards this individual family unit or even a, a or multi-generational uh, finger pointing when we don't want to, going back to the RISE Center's work, looking back further and say, what has created these pieces? Um, and I think it it comes down to to um, this idea of individualism and everything is how you create and um, you can do every, anything you set your mind to. And it just, I mean, it, we have to look at these pieces. And as an individual, uh, as an, an educator, I remember um, uh, DCS reports coming across my desk of families that I knew. Um, that I knew well, uh, and things that had been reported because as a as an administrator, it was reported to me. Sometimes it was even anonymous. I didn't know who made the report, but it was always reported to me, uh, and I could never tell anybody they couldn't report right because that that's that's unethical. Um, but there were some, and I would think this is totally grounded in perception. This is totally grounded. Sometimes, to be honest, in racism. Um, because of the way that a parent said something or responded in a way or said something to a child, their child, that a report was made. And so I think we, we have to look at these pieces. And then I think, Ingrid, what I, what I had conversations with many parents, uh, most of the time when I talked to a parent at school, I, I took my principal hat and I threw it in the garbage can. Um, and I talked parent to parent, and I would tell them, I have multiple degrees, and I still have no idea what I'm doing half the time as a parent. <laughs> and I would, I would be honest, and, th and that was the truth. And I remember seeing facial expressions like, I can't believe you just said that. And I'm like, I can't believe that you think I know what I'm doing as a parent. As a principal, <laughs> I've got it. Um, but I would hear things like, but Portel, you don't know what it's like to be raising a black boy in this current state. And I would have to say, 
You're right. And that's why I would never tell a parent how to parent because I only have my perspective. What I would tell parents is what I know about science, what I know about outcomes, and what I know about those positive experiences. Um, And I wanted to ensure every parent to know um, I didn't operate in judgment because there were times, Ingrid, I've said things to my child that I had to go back and apologize for. And I've had to go back and say, that wasn't, Harrison, that was not right. Um, I was upset. I was angry. I was frustrated. Whatever it is, um, there is no perfect parent. Uh, and I, I, I don't say that as an excuse because it's not, but there isn't one. Uh, this job is really hard um, and nobody really does prepare you. Parenting is hard. And we have another question that has come through that's really pushing us to think about solutions. And um, they bring up parent education as well. And this is important because, and it ties to kind of how I got into the work that that I'm in now. Uh, I came to my understanding of historical trauma because I went to grad school to answer a question, which is, why are so many African-American children in the juvenile justice system? It must be poor parenting. And I came to the space and I said, um, you know, we need to do something about parenting. My my advisor is the one who really helped me to think through systems so that the the answer is not to do something about parenting because parents do not parent in a vacuum. They are parenting within the social political context, within the social historical context. Um, They're parenting within... um, their understanding of what it means to navigate the space, um, this space being the country that we live in. And so parent education is very important, but what what are we going to educate our parents on? So when I would um, have parents, and I've, and I've done a lot of things, so uh, I've also been an in-home um, family crisis counselor. And so I would go into homes and and really help them with whatever it was that they were struggling with. It was mostly behavior. It was also largely physical abuse. And so um, if I come into a home, especially homes that have dealt with historical trauma, and I come to them and then I say, you know, don't spank your child, um, they have uh, a, a team of other family members that are telling them that the reason why their child is acting out behaviorally is because they are not spanking them enough. And who are they going to believe, me or, or grandma? And so parent education can go so far, but I think that it's important to be honest. And so what does it mean to go through a process of truth-telling and reconciliation to the parents in America? Um, parenting is hard. Uh, and parenting is even harder in poverty. Parenting is even harder dealing with racism. Um, parenting is even harder if you, as the parent, have a disability or chronic pain. Or, I mean, any other, there's, there's so much there to consider. But the conditions that have been created for parents, that is systemic and no parent can address it. And so parents will have an easier time parenting if they have more money. They'll have an easier time parenting if they have less racism. They'll have an easier time parenting if they didn't have to parent girls in rape culture. And how are we addressing that as opposed to putting upon parents to learn how to be better parents? I think we need to burn the candle at both ends. Um, We need to talk about the conditions 
that make parenting harder. And we need to think of parent education in a different way. If I had a class where I was going in to talk with um, Black parents about behavioral issues or school success or all the different ways that we point fingers at Black parents around their parenting, community violence, um, you know, and if I don't start that conversation with how slavery and racism has impacted their parenting, then I'm not talking about anything that they should be hearing um, because it is extremely relevant uh, in the space. And so how are we using truth and reconciliation to talk with parents? If I'm talking to parents about uh, issues along the lines of, you know, really anything, if I'm not bringing up uh, how blame and shame is rooted in our um, upbringing because of religion, then we're not having real conversations. And so we really have to think through the big picture. I agree with that. And, and that, that hit home with me. Um, blame and shame is, again, to kind of just talk about my experience as, a, as growing up in an evangelical home where literally from the time I can remember thinking, uh, being terrified that I was going to go to hell um, and remembering sermons about what it was going to be like and literally being fearful um, of making any mistakes and, uh, you know, God was watching everything that I did. And, um, there was just so many pieces that it wasn't until I was in my mid twenties where I, I was able to start processing some of that. And even to this day, I've, I've, uh, matter of fact, I've talked to a colleague that I've learned through this work, who's writing a book on this exact topic. And we do have to examine it. Um, and I think Ingrid, conversation you or I were having the other day too is even talking about rural America and talking about the context of of being in rural America and thinking about the same things that we were talking about earlier, accessibility and connectedness and all of these pieces that impact uh, so many communities. Um, And of course, that may not be grounded necessarily in racism when we're talking about white rural America, but there is absolutely black rural America. Uh, and we know that it, it, rural America doesn't just mean pe- white people that live in the country, right? Um, and so I think we have to really look at that because that impacts family units, right? That impacts how those generations, if my family grew up in rural America and and my grandparents and their grandparents, and um, I even think about my grandparents grew up in rural America um, and, and my grandpa's philosophies and how that transferred to my mom and how even I am trying to process what was transferred to me. Uh, and so I, I think you're right. And I do think when you're talking parenting classes, um, man, uh, those were tried at, at, at the school that I led uh, from an outside organization. And I'm going to be honest, there's not too many people who want to show up to parenting classes because no, no parent want to go, wants to say, well, I don't know how to parent. But let's be honest, most people are going, I don't know how to parent, right? And so I think there's got to be a collective space in which we can have these conversations about historical context all the way down to what is the implication for my family. Um, and I think about that in, in the space that we did have, um, we did have uh, circles with families. And we did talk about what barriers do you have as a family um, to, 
that maybe inhibit your children from, from meeting the potential that you hope they have. Now, that was powerful um, because families began to talk about the, the actual barriers. Um, and then from a perspective of school, we started trying to figure out how to navigate some of those barriers. Mm-hmm. And some of those were societal barriers that we couldn't change in the space that we were in, which is why we have to think bigger than just what is the family doing wrong? Yeah, I think the key takeaways are first, parent, parent education matters, but what we decide to talk about with parents is, is the issue. Um, on top of that, um, how to really engage parents and how to get them to the space. I've worked uh, just to <laughs> full disclosure, my, my child goes to private school, my four-year-old, we have parent education because it's mandatory. And so it also becomes mm. an issue of elitism. Mm-hmm. Um, so which schools are requiring parent involvement? Um, that what kind of parents can go to parent education courses and classes? Um, what are they talking about when they get there? Is it just uh, these very didactic um, one-on-one interactions that's tied to behavioralism, rewards and consequences? Or is it about real connection, about real truth telling? Uh, And then, of course, you know, when we think about what parents should know, um, like you said, you hit up on these societal barriers that you can't do anything about. Uh, And so the solution there is definitely uh, outlining what those barriers are, because not all parents understand historical trauma or how racism is impacting their their, um, parenting or uh, sexism and rape cultures impacting their parent parenting. You have to make the connections for them. Be very clear. The reason why you treat this child differently than this child based on sex and gender uh, is because of these issues within our society. The reason why you're struggling, I mean, even we think about um, interracial adoption, the reason why you're struggling around issues of with your uh, black boys is because we live in a racist society. You have to be very clear and explicit around that. Um, but the, the conversation needs to be a bigger conversation than just parents. Um, like I said, I got to this work because I came into this work with a uh, I like to call my little white supremacist when I first started that was like these parents and, you know, an indictment on, on black parenting. Uh, and then I was, and then I was able to understand by being really introduced to the concept of trauma and historical trauma that racism impacts parenting and that we have to talk about it to have real discussions around parenting. Uh, and then we need to be able to talk about what the solutions are, and that's going to be those positive childhood experiences. We have to think of positive childhood experiences as an equity issue. That that means that groups that are experiencing high levels of adversity, um, we can facilitate positive childhood experiences for them as a way to be a protective factor, prevention of buffer. Um, we're getting close to close. I want to give um, you some time, Matthew, for any last words to get us ready for our next section that's really going to be focused on community. You know, I mean, I, I don't have many other than my, my brain is spinning and I'm constantly in, in <laughs> thought and reflection. Um, and I'm really excited to, to, to get this series going and talking to um, some guests who um, are also believing all these things that we say, but also are in places and spaces in which they're trying to 
disrupt. So I'm just, I'm, I'm, I hate that we're having this conversation because I wish we lived in a world we didn't have to have these conversations. Um, but I am, I am excited to be able to uh, give people hope because there is hope, but we have to identify what has happened in order to get to hope. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining us. Um, next week, we'll focus on the community and talk more about systemic issues when it comes to child abuse in America. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.